the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the Heart of the City. Well, this is Heart of the City. My name is Chuck Olmsted. I'm the director of local ministry here at KGNW, and I th- thank you so much for joining us today. Heart of the City is a program, an interview program, that uh, uh, we, we meet people who are, um, have come to know Jesus, who uh, are in ministry uh, positions uh, around the community, and uh, oftentimes we hear th- them preach, or we hear them on the radio, we hear the message that the Lord has given to them, but oftentimes we don't hear the backstory. We don't hear the God story of how they came to a relationship with Jesus. And uh, we like to share those stories here on Heart of the City. With me today is a, a man that I just met and um, really excited to uh, have you here, Marvin Charles. Welcome this morning. Uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be here this morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I say, you and I just had an opportunity to. Uh, to learn a little bit about each other, and uh, you have an organization called Divine Alternatives for Dad Services, or or DADS, yes. and uh, here in the Seattle area. And how long has that been going on? Um, my um, <clears throat> wife and I are co-founders, and we founded that organization in 1999 in our living room. Wow, in Seattle, the Rainier Valley area. So 17 years, right? Yes. Right yes. about now, yeah. And yeah. we're going to talk a little bit more about. Uh, dads and what you do in this area, but you've got an incredible story, and I've had an opportunity to uh, to read your book, uh, Becoming Dads: A Mission to Restore Absent Fathers, and uh, and you have a story that's pretty unique, I think, for a <laughs> lot of people. And uh, we just want to take a, a few minutes here to kind of go back. And mm-hmm. uh, it was fascinating as I was reading your story in your book. Uh, of all the places that are around here, around this studio and around uh, Capitol Hill and Beacon Hill and mm. and this area and um, and what your life was like back in the uh, in the '60s and '70s. Mm. So let's let's start back at the beginning. Mm. You grew up here in the Seattle area. Yes, I did. Um, I was um, uh, raised in a, the uh, adopted home which I was totally unaware of. Uh, I was made aware that I was adopted at nine when my adopted mother died, and uh, relatives came in to say, that was not your mother, that's not your father. And you had no idea? I had no idea. You thought that was, that was your mom and dad? I mean, I felt loved. I had birthday parties. It, it was just, um, I call it the leave-it-to-beaver family that I was a, a, a part of, and it was a it was a wonderful thing. I remember Christmases. I remember the toys I got. I remember things, birthday parties. and um, But all that seemed to come to a crashing halt when I um, um, turned nine and my adopted mother died. Um, we went to live with the relatives that 
um, took us in. And um, I remember wearing a Catholic uniform to uh, public school for years and being humiliated by um, that uh, kids picking on me and stuff. And so it just went from one extreme to another extreme. Yeah, yeah. And and school for you was uh, at Madrona? Well, actually, it was uh, a Coleman, Coleman Elementary School that was... Uh, and existed then. I think the next following year it closed down. Uh, uh-huh. And so then um, we What were year was that? What? Uh, 1966. Okay. Right? In 1967, they started the busing program in Seattle. So my little sister and I were uh, headed off to Northgate Elementary School. Um, I'll never forget. It was the first busing program in the Seattle area. Uh-huh. So we literally had to walk to a bus stop in the Central District and then ride off to Northgate Elementary School. So, and you were living in the... Central District. In the Central District. Yeah. So so what was life like? I know in your book you talk about that time when you had moved with in with relatives, totally different than what you had experienced the first nine years of your life. Talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit. Well, it was... <clears throat> Um, I had a relative who had some pretty uh, distinct ways that they thought about raising kids. And I didn't know that. Back back in the day, you know, you were always told kids are to be seen and not heard and things of that nature. Well, when my mother uh, passed, nobody explained to us anything that would nurture us or help us to understand this process. We were just expected to go through that. And so I had a lot of depression. I lived in this this home that um, had a lot of rules and regulations. I, I remember we couldn't watch any TV during the week. Um, we couldn't go outside to play. I, we went to school, bring all your books home, and if you don't have homework, I'll give you homework. And, and you know, this was when kids were watching Batman and things like this, and so I'd go to school and hear all this, but I had no concept or no um, anything to do with any of that. And um, couldn't go outside to play, couldn't have any friends, couldn't talk on the phone. So, you know, I always joke about it now, but I... Well, I was, was it because of some sort of a religious context, or was it just the way your it, uncle thought that's the way you grew kids? I, I really don't know. I just know that he used to say, if you don't believe me, ask one, two, and three. He had two other, three other sons, and so um, I, at this point was a child who didn't know any better, who didn't know how to question, who didn't know how to ask, who didn't challenge anything. And because I was always led to believe that you don't do those things, even if they're wrong, mm-hmm. right? You just accept what it is. Um, I made it a point to teach my kids the opposite of that. Why? Because I don't want them locked into a situation where if things are going wrong, they should question it. Mm-hmm. But at that time growing up, we weren't taught that. Yeah. We yeah. weren't taught that. Yeah. Question. Well, I noticed uh, in reading your book, you, you, you said, you know, as a young man, I just ob- observed these things, but nobody helped me to understand or process them. Yes. They're, so your, your, your uncle, you know, had these rules, but didn't even tell you why. No, no. <laughs> I, I remember one of the things, he explained things like these. Um, he uh, took me to the stove and stuck my hand turned the eye on and stuck my hand over the eye and said, this will teach you not to steal. I remember he boiled some hot eggs on the stove, some hot boiled eggs, and picked one up and said, 
he didn't put it in my mouth, but he, he threatened to put it in my mouth and said, this will teach you not to lie. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, it was these kind of things that I was, I just remember being a kid who was totally tetrified. Yeah. Uh, obviously, everything was based on fear. Yes. No yeah. love, yes. all fear. Yes. yes. All fear. Yes. Yes. And that's kind of a dangerous recipe, isn't it? Well, when someone's motive has to, is motivated throughout their whole life by fear. I'll tell you what's even more dangerous. Um, and I've come and I'm speaking from experience is when I came to be a father and to raise my kids, I took on some of those same Mm -hmm. mentalities. Mm -hmm. Now that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I had nothing else to base it on. And I always remember what it did to me. It put the fear of God in me. So maybe I should put the fear of God. It wasn't long after that. My wife (laughs) kind of let me know this didn't work then and it's not going to work now. You know what I mean? <laughs> but those were some of the, the the things that I know that we as parents kind of go in. We pull some of that stuff. If that stuff is negative stuff, then we pull some of that negativity right along with us. And, mm-hmm. and we have to figure out how not to do that. Well, and, and oftentimes it's only by the grace of God that we're even Amen. able to, to understand or recognize those things. And those patterns continue to perpetuate throughout the generations. Amen. It Amen. just it, it happens. It's a well, the word talks about the fact that. The sins of the fathers <laughs> exactly. are visited on the third and fourth generations, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. And so there has to come along some sort of a redeemer, some sort of, um, uh, you know, redemption somehow that happens in your life to be able to break free of some of that cycle. I, I got to tell you, for me, it was understanding that I could have a personal relationship. Hmm. You know, when that was brought to my attention in the midst of my madness, somebody said, you could have a personal relationship with God. And I remember my exact words were, you mean I ain't got to do this anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, I could surrender all this that I thought this is how it goes and that's how it goes and this is how you do it. I don't have to even make those decisions anymore. It was free, life free. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get too far into the mud, but but people need to hear your story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, uh, talk to us about, you know, with, with this uh, – living situation that you were in, what happened next, you know, as far as high school or or, or school itself and then your well, life in your early teenage years? Well, you know, um, I um, went through that for a number of years, and then um, um, I was able to um, get away from that for a couple of years. My uncle said, you know what, you need to go stay with your father. So I went to go live with my father, and it was really out of frustration that he said that. And I don't even know what the frustration was. But um, so I went to live with my father. And those two years living with my father, he was different than he was when I grew up with him. Um, He was a a single man. He was um, spending time with a lot of women that were coming in out of the house. I didn't, I had, I had at 13 years old, I had a lot of freedom. In fact, more freedom than I needed to have. But in having that freedom, I started undertaking behaviors. I was stealing. I was doing all that kind of things that um, I felt that I had to because nobody was providing for me. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I started being aware of a lot of things that was going on in Seattle in the mid-60s, the late 60s. Which was a lot of crazy stuff. (laughs) A lot of crazy. I remember I first saw a pimp who lived across the street and this guy was dressed nice. He drove a nice car, and he had—he looked like he didn't have any worries in the world. And I was attracted to that. 
I was attracted to that. Um, didn't have a whole lot of access to anything like that, but then my father had a roommate who was also a pimp, and so I, I had an up-close and personal note on things to do and things how to do that. Well, yeah. um, I went to school. Uh, I was in middle school. I went to school, and I got in a fight with a couple of guys, um, and I grabbed a pop bottle and broke it. At that time, two-liter bottles were glass, right? Mm-hmm. And the principal... Um, Saving the fight or me or the kids tackled me to the ground and I cut him on an accident across his eye. And I just remember feeling really remorseful. He bled like everything. And my uncle came back to the school and said, that's it. You're coming back to the home with us. So I was headed to high school then. And so I was up underneath those same stipulations. You know, no, no, no outside activity. You go to school, you come back. And I remember I lost my house key, and he was really adamant about not losing house key. I had lost my house key once before, and his punishment was that was to go outside, get two bricks, bring them in, crush them up, kneel in them while I hold two other rocks above my head. And so when he offered this uh, this punishment to me again, I got outside the house, and I said, I can't do it again. And so... Um, he, and he also offered to do this to my sister at the same time. So we got outside. I convinced her. I tried to convince her to come on. I was running to the youth center. I used to go to school and complain about what was going on. And so one of my guidance counselors told me, listen, if you run away, run to the youth center. Because if you do anything else, the police will just pick you up and bring you back home. So I had just plotted on this for a long time. And so when this opportunity came, I ran to the youth center told uh, them what was going on. And so they brought my uncle in the court, brought me in the court. And my uncle and aunt, and the judge asked him, "Did you do any of these kids this, this thing? These things this child said?" And he said, "Yes, I did, Your Honor. I believe if they live under my household, that um, they had, must abide by it." And so the judge made me a ward of the courts, hmm. a ward of the courts, um, it, it, which meant I went and lived with a family. I remember they said, "Do you have a friend that you can go live with?" Well, I did have one, so I went to live with him and his mother and his. Um, I, I got to say this, um, that probably was one of the most dangerous things that ever happened to me. Here's why. I'm 16 years old. I have, I have freedom for the first time in my life. I don't know what it is to do other than work. I got a little neighborhood youth court job. But now I'm open to the world. So all the things that a young teenager can imagine to do, I, I had access to. Right. I had access to. And I remember... I went and saw the movie Superfly, 16 years old. Now I've imagined in my mind what I want to be in life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, that was dangerous. I, I mean, to me, the way I equate that is if a young kid in the same situation saw Scarface, same thing. Mm-hmm. There's no sense of responsibility around you, so you, you do what do. And I, and I think that a lot of... Young men, particularly men who grew up in the urban core, have been faced with that for a number of years. And so that that was one of the things that took place in my life. I spent the next 20 years doing everything under the sun. Um, then I started, at 30, started having children. Hmm. And uh, nobody ever explained to me about what the responsibility of being a father was, you know? And nor did I even know what it took. I knew family, I knew I wanted family, but I had no concept of family either. 
So I thought I'd kind of make one up. Um, and what I mean by that is I started having girls, prostitutes who would do things, take care of me. And I felt like that was my family. And I tried to implement in that the things that I thought was family. And that just sounds really weird. But actually, that's, uh, I think, why I was somewhat successful in that field. Yeah. So so there was, even though it was warped, yet there was some sense of fulfillment, I guess you would say, or... You made it work somehow, yes, and you did have some relationship, even though it was warped. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, and and actually, um, there were some great relationships. The things that came in those relationships to make them, um, to s- destroy them was drugs. Mm. Drugs and alcohol came in, and they as they entered into it, it seemed to be an okay thing then, but. Years later, it, it, it became very destructive, very destructive. Well, I don't want to break away from this, but for some reason I feel compelled to ask you because of, uh, of the new laws here in Washington State regarding marijuana. I have some strong, strong <laughs> feelings about that being a gateway drug. And I don't, I'd just love to hear your comments on that before we continue on with your story Got you. as far as, as – how you see that working in our society? So, um, I I, I got to tell you, um, you know, certainly uh, my perspective is there's no drug that's a good drug. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's my perspective. But also, my perspective is what am I teaching my children? What am I showing my family? What am I doing? All I can do is give them the best, the pros and the cons, what it does. Drugs destroyed my family. I have eight children. Four of them were born crack addicted, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really, really put the emphasis not only on that, but around their friends and the community and a lot of that stuff. So I always look at it from that perspective. Now people say, well, this ain't that bad and this ain't bad. You know what? I sold weed as a youngster to put money in my pocket, right? Mm-hmm. Which told me it was okay, right? Mm-hmm. Illegally, but it told me it was okay. So I did believe it was okay. And so then when it came to cocaine or heroin, I felt it was okay. Why? Because I already had this one step that already led me to that. Now, I'm not saying that that's for everybody's understanding, but certainly, certainly me having children, me having children who are entering into society, I want to give them the best opportunity that I can. And for me, drugs don't allow that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can agree with you on that. And I, I won't get into all my feelings. <laughs> I wanted to hear yours because uh, I, I've seen it as a gateway drug for mm-hmm. so long. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've not seen very many good things come out of, uh, out of the marijuana scene or as it moves on to other drugs. And... Uh, so um so you're in you're in your 30s and um you're living a pretty uh what some would consider in those days a really high life and, yes. and literally a high life, high life. yes, yes, yes <laughs> and yes. being high a lot yes i um i just really you know as babies were being born uh, addicted uh, and i'm thinking that these are just the breaks and these are just the things that happened to me, poor me. I I really got into that until one day um, I was getting um, 
high and we had an apartment right up on Beacon Hill and my car broke down so I went to go check on my car. I couldn't do anything about it by myself so I went back to the house and got my girlfriend and we went to look at the car. Well, in the process of we leaving, there was a stove, a pot on the stove. I turned it off. She thought, didn't know I turned it off, so she turned it back on. And then we leave, and we come back, and the fire department and the police department and our apartment was filled with smoke, and there were three kids in there. And one of the oldest kids covered the kids up with a blanket. And the police officer told me, you are a poor example of a father mm-hmm. if you would leave your kids in that. And I literally remember arguing with him, nah, you got me mixed up with somebody else. But that's what the power of addiction would do. It would cause you to believe you aren't what you are. Mm-hmm. And after that, I just knew that there was something that needed to be done. I didn't know what, but I knew it was something that yeah. needed to be done. Yeah, that it kind of smacked you in the face yes, there. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So what happened next? Well, you know, about... Eight or nine months later, um, I had a, um, another child that was born, and I told myself, I can't, I can't, I gotta stop this, right? Which we all tell ourselves that, those who've been in power of addiction. And I gotta tell you, um, seven months later, I found myself doing the same thing. And somebody came in and asked me, could they get high in my home with my old lady? And I remember getting mad, cussing everybody out, grabbing this seven month old baby and leaving. The house. Now, my idea was, the brightest idea I had was, I'm going to leave her on the steps of the hospital. I got to the hospital and couldn't do it. I went to a woman's shelter and asked, is there anything you could do for a man 40-plus years old with a seven-month-old baby? And they told me, we can't do anything. So your best bet is to go to the CPS office. And that's what I did. But the CPS office already had two other kids of mine that had been looking for me for two years. And here I walk in the door with another child. But I had enough. I had enough. And so the CPS gave me some, some options. One was inpatient, outpatient treatment, and then began to create a, uh, an environment to raise children. I had no idea what that was. But I, at this point, I was willing to do whatever I needed to do. I went to treatment. About 45 days in the treatment facility, um, I couldn't understand why. Um, I have been off drugs longer than what I've ever been, but guess what? I wasn't feeling any better. So mm-hmm. I went to this church service that they had there, and I seen these people at an altar call, which I didn't know what that was, but these people were crying, and, and, and I said, that's what I need. And so the next Sunday I came, I sat up front. I can't even tell you what the sermon was, but I just knew I needed to do that altar call. I gave my life to the Lord. And it changed my life. I got baptized in Anger Lake uh, in the SeaTac area. And I remember coming out of the water and there was a young lady standing there with me. And she said, did you see all that? Did you see that? I said, see what? And a bald eagle had flew over the lake and took its talents. It didn't break the water, but it just took and folded them up and then flew away. And she said he just took all that sin out of the water. Mm. And I realized then that the real deal had happened. Amen. Amen. Well, we just kind of have cracked the surface of your story, and we're running out of time here. So I want to invite you back next week to share 
the rest of the story because it's a it's a dramatic story of of God's faithfulness and His ability to redeem a broken life. Amen. We've just got just a, a a half a minute left. If someone's listening today and and you just had a a, a brief chat with them, what would you say about what God had, did in your life at that time and what they can He can do in their life? Redemption. Redemption um, is why he went to the cross Mm -hmm. so that we would have another opportunity to live like he called us to live. I tell tell people all the time, I missed the boat the first time around. But in the name of Jesus, it came back around and I got on it. Mm -hmm. And I've been in his hands ever since. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, Marvin Charles. I appreciate you uh, sharing with us today. You're going to be on with us next week. You can uh, always go on KGNW.com and download the podcast of this program if you want to hear it some more. Thank you for joining me today, and we'll talk to you next Sunday. Yes, thank you. been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on KGNW, call Chuck Olmstead at 206-269-6216 or go to KGNW.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.